My name's Paul Cackett. I'm a CEO of cross-channel platform Clear.as and creative director of Thing One, um, a commercials production studio. In this session, we're going to discuss the um, impact and opportunities um, of the rapidly changing digital landscape that's had in the kids' industry. Um, over the past five years, we've seen, past many years, we've seen a, a seismic shift in the way that kids consume content, the way it's affected television, uh, linear ratings. Um, and we've seen a, a generation grow up um, with iPads and iPhones in their hands. Um, we've got some stats here, naturally, which say um, some really interesting ones here. It says that over, over the last four years, over 20% um, of linear viewing has declined. Um, but interestingly, over half of that has happened in the last year. Um, there's been an amazing viewing shift with half of kids watching um, content on lots of different devices. Um, in parallel, there's been an explosion in a number of digital platforms, not just Netflix, Amazon. Um, there's kids-specific platforms like Hopster, Toon Goggles, um, Wonderwheel. Um, and of course, uh, YouTube is the most visited destination by far um, for kids. It means that there's more viewing being done on more devices. Um, and there they are. There's a, there's a lot of platforms out there. So in this new world, um, what are kids looking at? How do new shows and IP prospers, prosper? How do existing channels and brands remain relevant? What do we do as creators, as producers, as broadcasters, as platform runners? Um, so to help hopefully answer or, or give us a steer on a lot of these questions, I'd like to introduce our panel, starting with Julie Cambridge, talent manager at the Gotham Group. Uh, Susie Adams, Digital Director at Nickelodeon UK. So Aspinall, Head of BT Kids, BT TV Kids, and Russell Miller, who's the CEO of Wonderwheel. <clears throat> uh, Julie, as someone who develops projects for TV, film, publishing, and managing clients, including creators, uh, artists, writers, producers, what do, you, what do you feel has had the biggest impact um, in the digital space for, for your clients? Well, it's, it's eliminated the gatekeepers. So now anybody with a great idea who has a lot of tenacity and an ability to create their own animation can put it up on YouTube and get their story and their characters out to the public, which is you know, a great opportunity for many creators, whether it's your student film or an original concept, you can get it out there for the world to see. There's two challenges. One, people have to find it. Not every video that's posted goes viral and has a million hits in an hour. That's not the norm. Um, you know, how do you get people to find your work? Um, and why is that important? For two reasons. You want to be able to monetize your creation so that you can afford to live as a creator. Um, you know, the YouTube paradigm is that uh, you start getting those lovely rev shares from YouTube when you post a lot of content on a very regular basis and you start getting a lot of hits and getting a following. When you're making animation in particular, it's very difficult to do because it's labor intensive and it's slow and it takes a lot of time. So you can't be Fred Crookshanks cranking out a new little vignette every you know, day or two because you're animating and it takes a long time. So that's uh, sort of one challenge to try and, and sort of win in the YouTube lottery. And uh, you know, the second challenges, you know, if it goes to, you know, a traditional broadcaster, you know, what is that deal going to look like as well? So yeah. Interesting. We'll come on to, to lots of those points mm -hmm. later. So you've been heading up kids at BTTV for a number of years. Um, what's changed since you, you started um, in, in broadcast 
um, in, in a way kids consume and how do your, your platform has grown? So BT TV launched seven years ago. It was one of the first uh, platforms in the UK to launch with an on-demand service. So seven years ago, not many people understood what on-demand was. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly... Uh, what is on-demand? What is on-demand? I, mean, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it was certainly uh, one of the biggest challenges that BT had was getting people to engage with on-demand without the fear of having to pay for something. Um, and when I look at data now, and like you said, in the last year, a lot of things have happened, a lot of things have changed. In the last three years, um, just looking at a very simple statistic that we have, which is the views per customer or per active customer, mm -hmm. and they have actually trebled in the last three years. And that's really interesting for, from my perspective yep. because it's things like the iPlayer, iTunes, et cetera, et cetera, that are coming to the market. The kids and parents as well, not just on the kids' side, but the kids and the parents are starting to understand what on-demand is. They're not as fearful of, of, of what it is. So you're seeing more viewers. There's more platforms, more content. And more, more platforms, more understanding, more instinct. Um, kids are a lot more active. They're not scared of it. They're controlling the remote control. Interesting. So let's move on to Russell. Welcome. Um, you're launching a digital on-demand uh, kids platform, Wonderwheel. What inspired you to do this? Um, kids. <laughs> uh, basically because, um, well, particularly kids, 8, 9, 10-year-old kids, and 8, 9, 10-year-old kids in the United States, um, they tend to be well underserved for all kinds of different commercial reasons. But I also think they're underestimated. And it looked like it would be possible online to create a service that really could meet kids where they were, meet mm -hmm. different kids who are interested in different things. Um, not the, the, the brilliant thing about being online is that you don't need massive audiences for any particular piece of content. Mm -hmm. So uh, you really can personalize viewing. So, so where are you getting your content from? All over the world. Um, the, the initial idea of the whole project uh, came from the recognition that there's tons and tons of really great stuff being made everywhere outside the United States. So we're aggregating from every continent right now, almost except North America, and dubbing everything into English and Spanish, um, and building a, a large content library, and then kids' individual channels we programmed out of the content library. Interesting. So coming on to Susie, um, Nickelodeon are doing some amazing things online. Um, we were talking about some earlier. Could you maybe give us an overview of what Nick are doing to remain really connected and relevant to, to its audience? Sure, absolutely. I think for, for Nickelodeon, it's not just about understanding, you know, kids' viewing patterns. It's understanding what they're doing, what they find interesting, their interaction and their involvement with the pieces of content that they're, they're using. Um, kids really are at the heart of everything we do at Nickelodeon. You know, they're, they're brought into our interview questions. They're brought into, um, you know, our induction videos. We really kind of maintain an absolute true focus on what, what kids are doing. Um, I think, you know, we really kind of understand that you can't just group kids into one neat little package. They've all got their own their own profiles. Um, we've just conducted a, a massive research piece to really understand their digital selfie. So it's called Me, My Selfie and I. And, and I think, you know, knowledge really is power in, in, this, in this world. And, and 
Nickelodeon really use that knowledge to provide the best content on the best platforms um, that are possible. You know, we've had a, a couple of great successes recently with the launch of our Nick app. Um, and, you know, this is a, a new platform for us. We are constantly trying, trialing the content that we're using on it. We're refining it. We're tweaking it. You know, we're not kind of saying that we're getting everything right. But, you know, we learn from what we do and we learn from what kids tell us. Interesting. Thank you. Um, Russell, are kids any different today than they were 20 years ago? No. <laughs> um, I think that's one of the big mistakes that we make as an industry, is that things change for us, things change in the resources that we have available, and, and things change in the technologies that are available to us. Um, and whenever new things come into the marketplace or new things come into the culture, kids pick up on them right away. And grown-ups tend to say, oh, kids have changed. But they haven't. They're just really good at trying new stuff and learning how to use what's around them. It's kind of the nature of being a kid. I mean, sometimes we forget that to be a kid just means to be someone who's a human being with fewer years of experience. Um, and that's what they're out for. They're out to get that experience. So no, I don't think kids have changed. I think we have a lot more things to offer them than we used to. Um, so how do we, um, as producers as, as marketeers and brands people how do we how do we reach this audience if they're looking at so many devices um playing so many games watching so many tv shows there's masses of it um what's a good place to start how do when you launch an app on nickelodeon how how what's the process i think you know um from our perspective it is really about understanding the audience and, and doing a significant amount of research into what they are enjoying at the moment so you know our, our project me myself and i was really kind of focused on understanding groups of different needs and and you know when you understand that you understand where to target them so mm. you know we've kind of looked at four different profiles um to really kind of understand how how kids migrate between those different selfies and also how some of them you know will go from one to another um, and skip a couple of sections so you know I think really when you understand what kids are interested in um, in their kind of minute detail you can understand how to you know how to target them in a relevant fashion so let's say we target them um, successfully and we have a, uh, a mega show and a mega app and we're the number one hit on YouTube. How do we measure that? What, how, what does measurement really mean? Um, how, how do we measure audiences? Do we measure engagement, um, emotional connection? Um, what's, what are the important measurement tools for kids? So. Oh, nice one. Um, <laughs> I think we're, at this point in time, we're in a very weird, weird place. With regards to measurement, obviously mm. we have traditional broadcast bar panel Nielsen, where depending on where you are in the world, what that is, and that's something that we all used to. As we saw in your slides at the beginning of the uh, start of the session, it's, people are starting to shift. And I sat in a similar room to this three years ago, discussing about this tipping point that there will become that on demand will become a problem mm. um, at some point, and it's not exactly a problem. It's changing with that. We have to change with it. We have to understand it. And I believe that we're now getting to that point and quite critically uh, getting to that point. So now you've got you know, 34 million, I think it is, Netflix households in, in the world. Yeah. You've got platforms like myself that use on-demand services. You've got Amazon Prime. You've got all of these other services that you had up on the slide earlier that are coming into play, but they're all unmeasured. They're mm. all 
I know all my 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 kids. <laughs> <laughs> They're not all mine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know what all the you kids. Get to the <laughs> <laughs> if they were, you could just watch. Amazing. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I understand what all the kids in in our households are watching, and I know exactly what is going on, what they're watching, how they're engaging. But you don't know that. You don't know that. And all those content producers out there yeah. have got no understanding, and that. I personally believe, even though I have access to the data, is something that we've got to work out how to handle. Netflix are famously known for not sharing their data. Yeah. We share some data with directly with content providers to give insight, but there needs to be something, what that something is. So we're still relying really heavily on editorial and uh, kids' own curation of, of content? Yeah, I mean, we, the difference between someone like Netflix and our, ourselves is that we editorialise, and it's quite a good USP, so not only do we take the major channel brands, um, we, actually buy direct con we actually buy contact direct. So it still works. The, the, the ethics of what I do as a job is still very much like a broadcasting. I need to understand what the kids, I'm still looking at data of what they're watching, what they're not watching. But ultimately, what they can do in an on-demand world is they can add to playlists, they can bookmark... They can favourite, they can create their own channel, which, mm. you know, for those of us in the room have done marathons and stunts for years and years and years. We don't, we still have to do that. We still yeah. do that. But the kids have the opportunity to create their own experience. Because the, the, way, the way kids um, curate and make their own playlists is, given the right technology, is not just about their favourite shows. It's about their favourite music and it's about uh, brands they follow. And it's a much bigger way of, of looking at things, yeah. I think. I think um, we're, in a, we're in a slightly different place because um, I think that, that there's this tendency to talk in extremes mm -hmm. of pro adult program linear television on one side and kid, quote, curated, unquote, programming on the other side. Um, I'm skeptical about the notion of kid curation, partly because uh, even in, a, in, in most, I mean, you look at Netflix as a kid curated environment. Well, it's kid curated, but the only menu they're offered is a series of graphic images of licensed characters with which they're already familiar. Mm -hmm. um, and so our strategy is actually, really, it's borrowed from, it's borrowed from Amazon. Um, we're curating at a certain level because we're deciding what's in the collection. And then we're using big data and algorithms to program different channels for each kid. Kids can then go in and they can, they can adjust their playlist, they can change what's in there. But the general notion is that kids are interested in having stuff put before them that they don't know about already. And they're not great at looking for new stuff in some mm -hmm. massive field of thumbnail images. So the influence, so the power of the influencer is as important as it ever was? I think, yeah, I mean, I think there are multiple influencers. Mm -hmm. um, another choice that we've made on the other side, um, which is interesting because it's really different from one of the other sites that just started Battery Pop. Battery Pop is, is um, focused on having kids vote on every single thing that they view because they're planning to use those votes to monetize content down the line. We're going on the other end. We're not letting kids vote on anything. We're not publishing within the site any popularity ratings. We're letting kids recommend to each other, partly because we want kids to be able to discover things that they're interested in themselves rather than just sort of, you know, jump on the tail of the herd. So if we're unsure of the performance of, of content on Netflix and other platforms, mm -hmm. um, what's the risk for uh, producers and, and content owners, Julie? How do we, how do, we do deals with these platforms? 
Um, well, I'd love to be able to do a deal with Netflix, but they aren't doing any original content yet for children, so that hasn't been a challenge. Um, we have been dealing with Amazon, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, they are offering participations. We obviously haven't gotten to a point to see what that looks like yet, but it looks very much like a traditional linear deal. Um, but we don't really know what revenue is going to be coming in. Um, because their subscription model, which is a little bit different than the ad models that the networks have been going off of. And you know, that is a big distinction. Um, you know, the networks have always relied on the ratings and depended on it. I'm stating the obvious here, but they're selling it to their advertisers, and that's how they afford to make the content. For the people that are subscription, it's a whole different thing. They just want enough you know, new programming, you know, buzzworthy programming, whatever, to sign up X number more subscribers, and that's going to, you know, make their bottom line. So in some ways, it's a very different matrix and how the businesses are run. So, um, you know, I don't know how we get the subscriber mentality to, to turn over that data. I hope that we do at some point, because <laughs> I like to renegotiate deals when my shows are successful. Um, for my creators, and if I don't know how successful they are, um, that's a problem. In fact, there was a big article, I think it was in The Hollywood Reporter right before I got on a plane, about how um, you know the House of Cards deals were coming up, and the Orange is the New Black deals were coming up, and all the, the talent reps were going crazy because they had no idea if it's done well or not. So it, it in some ways is really disempowering the creative people because we don't have the ammunition to go in and say, look, you got an X rating. We know that means Y dollars. You can afford to pay more for the creatives. We're really kept in a, in a vacuum because all we can say is we think it's doing well. And they can go, well, it's doing well enough. I mean, you know, that's sort of the conversation, which isn't very productive. <laughs> Does this help us look at new, new formats? Russell, in, um, in a way that you know, writers and creators are uh, well, approaching kids' content? Uh, I mean, I, I think it really depends a lot on, on, on institutional questions. So we're doing exactly the opposite of Netflix. I mean, our plan is to make all that data transparent and available to creators, partly because we are on a revenue share basis, and um, we're taking uh, a top-line percentage of, of, of gross revenue setting it aside, and then it's getting divided up on a viewership basis. So it's really important to us to know, but it's, I think it's equally important for creators to be able to see how much their shows are being viewed, what kids are watching their shows. I think there's a lot of information that we'll have that's going to help creators. As far as, you know, I think, I think that does point in the direction possibly of new formats. Mm -hmm. um, I think altogether, and, and, you know, this is going to depend a lot on, on how quickly we can grow, because our... Um, our overhead is relatively limited. So at a certain point, like we're to be totally honest about this, we're launching with 20% of gross revenue is being set aside for creators. And our objective is to get to 50%. I'm not sure how long that's going to take. Once we sort of covered our overhead, then we can we can start to think about that. So when we get to a point where 50% of our of our revenue is going to creators and we start expanding subscriptions, then little by little real money is going to start to come in and people will be able we hope, to use that to develop product. They may not have the kind of budgets that Game of Thrones has, but you know, I can make a really good video with the, with the you know, Android phone in my pocket 
So I think there are going to be new opportunities that way. So there's content at that end, which is Game of Thrones, big, mm -hmm. big budget. And right. there's content at that end, which is, I've made it on my iPhone, but it's, right. a, it's a sensation. And, the, and I, think, I think what it means is that, you know, the real creative power of creators is going to come into play. I think there's going to be a lot smaller teams creating content. I think creators are going to have more control over what they make. There are going to be way fewer network executives in the middle telling them that this is going to work or that's going to work. And, and we are going to have a canvas where, you know, it, it's sort of as Julie said, the, the barrier to entry is going to be lower. But then what you need is for the content to be directed to viewers who might not know about it otherwise. And that's, and that's where we see the algorithm working, that little by little we'll learn about our subscribers, we'll know what our content is, and we'll be able to make those matches along the line. And I, I, it's, it's our hope that that's going to benefit creators in the long run. So uh, coming to our algorithms, they've obviously been important with, with, with Facebook, where we know kids are definitely not on. Right. Um, so with, with social networks becoming as, as more and more powerful, um, we know kids are using Instagram and, and, and Twitter and Vine. Um, do you think, um, maybe a question for Susie, we'll see some um, interesting content come out of uh, Vine and, and you know, sh some real cool short form video? I definitely think it's it's possible. I mean, kids are already creating that content, as you've as you've said, you know. And I think that content producers need to look at these new tools and and how how to use them to start developing content. Because I think we can learn from what's out there already and what everybody is kind of using to create their own content. So, mm -hmm. you know, I definitely think that there's a there's a place for it for sure. So, um, Julie. Um, one of your producers comes to you and says, I've made the next big thing. It's 15 seconds long. Help me out. <laughs> Where do they go? What's their roadmap? Um, that's a really good question. It depends on who they are, actually, and that was what <laughs> I was going to follow up on. Um, you know, there's been a phenomenon sort of in the digital publishing space where if you're already a really well-established author, many of them have decided they don't need their publishers anymore. They just publish this, their, their content directly and have been very successful at it. To that same, uh, you know, and if you are already an established creator and you've created hit shows for Nickelodeon or Disney or the BBC or wherever, you've got a following. You have a marketing machine that's already there because of your fan base and parents know who you are and they know that your show is a quality show. So if you're one of those creators, you probably are tweeting. Mm -hmm. You've probably got a Facebook page. You know, you've got all this awareness already. You can put it up and people will find it. And if it's interesting and funny and whatever, as long as they've done their homework and they've actually developed something more than just the 15 seconds and know who the characters are and the world they inhabit and what the franchise of the series is going to be, which we talked about in the pitch at workshop yesterday, mm -hmm. they know what all those things are. Yeah, you know, there's a way to really grow that. If you're a nascent creator, it's a much harder thing because you don't have that marketing mechanism behind you, either from your, your own notoriety or using, linking into another platform, it's very difficult to get people to find you. I mean, there's exceptions. Um, in the States, there was a short called Breadwinners that's actually still up on YouTube, if you guys want to look it up. Um, it's now a show on Nickelodeon, but the original short is up there. It was two guys who got frustrated, and they spent a year animating this thing, and they posted it. And it got picked up on the animation websites, and it sort of went viral within the animation community and resulted in a three-way bidding war between Disney, Cartoon Network, and Nickelodeon, and Nickelodeon won. So that's sort of the win. Um, but these guys were not complete unknowns. They were working at the studios. They kind of understood how the business worked. In fact, this project had been passed on. Um, so they, they did have a foot in the door, 
you know, they weren't completely outside the system, but this really helped them kick the door open. So it would depend on the on the creator, actually. And the power the... of them to create mm -hmm. their own brand. Yep. So coming on back to the power of, of the brand, um, if you look at a, a, a property like uh, Peppa Pig, we were, we were talking about earlier, Sarah, um, that plays on in lo on lots of different platforms in lots of different places. Um, how how do you, um, as a rights owner, um, and you own the rights to Peppa Pig, if you're very lucky, um, <laughs> um, how can you do so many deals when when everyone's been buying up every every in perpetuity VOD um, right for the last sort of five or ten years? It's very hard. Um, I mean, look, the win is if you can get that online sensation, if you can get a publishing deal, if you can publish a graphic novel, if you can create something outside of the traditional space, it gives you a way to say, this property is already established, I've already created value in it, and as a creator, it gives you a lot more leverage in negotiating with, with any of the... Um, whether it's a co-production out of the EU or whether it's dealing directly with one of the buyers in the US. It gives you leverage because you've already put the, the sweat into creating that content. If it's just a raw idea that you're going into pitch, it's very, very difficult to carve out those rights um, because of when these folks want to license it or when the network um, that's purchased it wants to do the next holographic device that's going to be out in five years and they want to know whether they can do a hologram of Peppa Pig and do a holographic program, they're going to, going to want to know that they have all those rights. And as many of you know in the room, what's the language? We hereby write by all rights now known or hereafter devised throughout the universe in perpetuity. <laughs> that's honest to God the language, as many of you know. That's the language that you're going to get from a standard broadcaster when you try to sell your show. So, um, you know, we've done it successfully, uh, not with a children's program, but with a project called Axe Cop that was actually an online comic. Um, we then set up a licensing deal. So we had then carved out publishing and licensing. We got a traditional publishing deal with Dark Horse Comics, and then they sold it to ADHD, the late night block on Fox. So um, because it sort of organically grew that way, mm -hmm. we were able to keep those different buckets of rights for the creators, um, and we didn't have to give it all up. But if it's just a raw idea, it's a really tough. You don't have any leverage. Mm. Um, let's, let's go on to um, YouTube and maybe talk about the success of some YouTube channels um, and, and, and maybe say what, what you guys have done with YouTube channels. Um, what successes have you seen, and have you got any advice for producers? Um, who want to break yeah. it on there? So, yeah, I mean, part of what um, BTTV, from the kids' side of stuff, we're trying to be different is we're not just, like I said before, we're not taking from the major brands. We're trying to create uh, an environment that kids can find all sorts of content, and we range from, from baby through to, to tween. And over the last two years, we've had two properties that are not so traditional. Again, coming from a linear background, I would have seen a one-minute short and been like, oh, that's really cool, that's really great, but I can't do anything with that. Mm -hmm. um, but having the option of being able to put up whatever we want, um, regardless of duration, regardless of volume and everything yeah. else, it's really opened up my mind and opportunity. So two examples we've had is recently we had Moshi Monsters, which I'm sure most people in this room will know. Mm -hmm. um, we had their music videos. There was only about 12, I think, there was. Um, and 
they rocked, quite simply. Um, <laughs> I wish I could share data with you because it's quite phenomenal. For you know, We are quite a small platform, but just those one minute ten, I think they were, music videos that were ridiculously annoying and ridiculously <laughs> ad addictive to watch. And it did so well. And that's a very non-traditional yeah. um, situation to be in. And more recently, um, we've had... Um, for years, I was looking for a, a strong property, sing-alongs, karaoke for preschools. It's a no-brainer. And um, stumbled across through, uh, through connections and as you, you know, just as you do through networking, through what we're all doing here now, um, is a company called Nursery Rhymes TV, which is a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, we've recently come to, to a situation where the, you know, the, the content is on the service. It's within its own branded areas. If it's a channel... It's not on any broadcaster. It's purely only on only on YouTube, and again, it's doing incredibly well for us. So when I look at content, when I'm looking for content, it's not. It is about having those key major brands, mm -hmm. but it's also generating a, a, a possibility for so much more. So stuff for all types of audiences, um, music um, and things like Moshi Monsters that probably have a, an enormously high. Uh, repeat value you could almost just stick it on a loop and exactly and um and, and kids will consume so um susie you've, you've had some success with big box of sing songs um could you maybe tell us a bit more about that experience and how, how you marketed it and how did kids find it and sure i mean big box sing songs was um you know it's a, a product that we just absolutely loved at nickelodeon and it's on our nick jr channel and you know it kind of had all of us in stitches so we kind of understood that if it was making us laugh it would definitely make both kids and parents laugh so you know we've kind of um put it on our um our website so we kind of uh, cut all of the all of the songs and put them in their own like little package online and posted about it on our Facebook page because it's targeted to mums to talk about it and they were going absolutely crazy really loved these short little snippets we're still to this day in our kind of teams flinging round the videos to each other because <laughs> they just make us laugh so the um, the producers um have had some um, some quite good success, uh, Julie. Um, I understand on um, retaining rights for big song, big box of sing songs worldwide. Yes, they um, they sort of did a non-traditional way too. Is what I've learned through conversations at this conference because I didn't represent them. But um, they actually collaborated with a Canadian broadcaster. Um, so that was sort of the partner that they are into business with, and because they chose to do that, um, that broadcaster was unable to have the leverage when they were dealing with the Nickelodeons and the Disneys and the other people to um, make sure that the deals were favorable. They basically had not an 800-pound gorilla, but a 400-pound gorilla in their corner, which helped immensely. Um, Russell, I want to come back to something you, talk, you, you touched on earlier, and, and we were talking about how you measure audiences. Mm -hmm. um, for years, we've seen um, we've been looking at audiences as an average, and we know that a seven, one seven-year-old boy is, no, is not the same as another seven-year-old mm -hmm. boy in terms of behaviour in, in life, their personalities, and online. Right. Um, what are your kind of thoughts on on how we break away from the average? Well, online it becomes incredibly simple because we know exactly what every single participant in the system is doing, when they're doing it, how long they're doing it for, and we can also develop patterns. You know, we'll, we'll know the viewing pattern for every individual kid, and we'll also be able to develop aggregate viewing patterns around different characteristics. So that's, you know, just sort of one part of it. 
but in a kind of broader and more cultural sense, I think the idea is to is to construe the content that's available on the site as much more like a library than like a TV channel. Mm -hmm. And in a library, you know, kids walk into the library and they browse the shelves and they find books they want to read and every kid walks to the circulation desk with a different pile. And I think that in the long run is going to be a model that works for kids. I think all of these models, by the way, mm -hmm. work for kids in different mm -hmm. places. And, you know, one of the things that, that I been, that I talked to our investors and potential investors about is that you know success for Wonder Reel is 10% of the viewing of 10% of kids. Um, I think that Nickelodeon and Disney Cartoon Network are going to remain. They're powerful cultural forces. And whether they're on broadcast or, well, not, not broadcast, but whether they're on cable or they're online or wherever they are, I think that they have a place in kids' lives. I think the issue is that you know we can provide the internet makes it possible to provide a wide range of variety of experiences for kids so they can do different things at different times they can go to youtube and you know dart around looking at funny cat videos if that's what they feel like doing and then and and and, and again you know kids haven't changed right so we'll have panels like this and people have conversations about oh children don't have attention spans any longer and then i go well then why did they read an 800 page jk rowling book <laughs> why did they sit through a 3 hour movie why did they wait a year and a half between two halves of the deathly hallows right mm -hmm. I, I i just think you know we really underestimate kids and 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 i think we probably underestimate human beings in general and that the more we're able to take advantage of all the different ways people want to experience media, I think there's room for a lot more success across the board. So, um, so sort of following on from uh, Wonderville um, and the amount of uh, platforms that are out there, I, mm -hmm. I don't personally think there's, there's massive, there's a lot of very good ones, mm -hmm. um, and that content owners, you don't have to be on all of them all, of the, all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to follow your audience and not the platform. Um, what do you, a bit of stargazing, what do you, what do you think um, uh, Russell will, will, will change in the next five or ten years? What, what <laughs> I think will change. I think we'll be something. incredibly successful. I'll become quite wealthy. We're going to buy all my creators' original content. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, part, that, that's not so far off. Because part, of what, I, part of what I do really envision <laughs> into that. is, I mean, it's, it's, it's what I was saying before about, about reaching overhead. Um, I think one part of our vision for the company is that once we establish ourselves using archival content and basically finding new value in libraries full of content that are sitting, gathering dust on shelves all over the world, going, I mean, we're having conversations now about putting Chaplin and Keaton shorts onto Wonder Reel because kids will like that stuff and no yeah. one's offering it to them. Um, so I think that's sort of a place to start. But once we're going and we're starting to generate income, yeah, we are going to be able to go back to creators. And I also think that, I don't know, we're in a slightly different situation because we're organized um, as a public benefit corporation, which is a new sort of a business model in the United States where you're allowed to include your public service goals in your corporate charter. Mm -hmm. So you're allowed to make decisions that might not be the most lucrative decisions, but support your mission, even though you're a for-profit company. And I think that's going to help us support lots and lots of creators in making new content and getting online. And for example, we're, we're sort of committed not to looking for all rights. I mean, we're committed to non-exclusive streaming rights, partly because we think that we're going to create an environment where people will come, kids will come to Wonder Real 
to see the content. If it's available somewhere else, that's fine. They can watch. I mean, it's sort of, Sarah was mentioning the thing about the YouTube channel, right? Kids are going to watch this. They could watch it on YouTube, mm -hmm. but they don't want to watch it on YouTube if, if it's available on BTTV and that's a place mm -hmm. that they feel good about watching. Yeah, I mean, we have Peppa Pig on, on BTTV. Right. I mean, there's no surprise, you know, shock that it, it does very well for us. But within just our environment, our platform, they can access it in maybe three or four different right. ways, but we, they still will watch it in the easiest, most easiest place possible, whatever's, whatever is easy for them at that time and at that point, be it on YouTube, where you can watch Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig is everywhere. It's on Nickelodeon, it's on Channel 5, it's with us. It's, yep. you know, it's, it is in a number of places, but it still does incredibly well. I, I think there's one structural change that the internet will bring to the industry. I think that not everyone will be in need of hits anymore. I think the notion of hits is going to change and there's going to emerge this kind of new category of mid-list video, video that doesn't have to be transmedia and apps that don't have to be transmedia because they're just doing perfectly well in a small place and the people who make them feel empowered to keep making stuff. They don't feel like they need to become George Lucas or Walt Disney. They just feel like they can keep being themselves and making stuff and I think when there's a, when there's a marketplace for them to present that stuff to the public, I think it may end up I hope, leading to a structural change in the way stuff is created and distributed. So, um, bringing it back to sort of linear TV, whatever that means now, um, in, a, in a, for Netflix viewing, for example, we've seen with House of Cards and, um, and Orange is the New Black that it's followed the DVD box set model of, of binge viewing. Um, I think that's probably happened in, in kids' television for a very long time. Um, they're just more able to, to have total control of it now. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that will that will continue and it's going to make it a harder job for for uh, brands for new brands to find a way if you've got 24/7 access to um Jesse um how do you break a new show um probably an interesting question for Susie I think I mean I th I think it's an interesting question in terms of looking at the the whole kind of cycle of content to mm -hmm. be honest because we've done some really brilliant stunts that have used you know a, a library service of content like Spongebob's Top 100 that did you know a, a massive kind of deal for us you know it worked incredibly well online and also for our programming team so you know we do think of things in a kind of circular way at Nickelodeon as well you know we're a very kind of well connected team everybody talks to everybody else you know we all kind of know what, what each other's doing and I think that really helps you make the best out of your content and I think if your content is good, it will do well. So, Yes, yeah, true. And stunts, I think, are a perfect example because if you're doing a SpongeBob stunt and you know you're going to get an audience for a SpongeBob stunt, that's the perfect place to seed yeah. your new show mm -hmm. and preview your new yeah. shows and, and get them to kids, it seems like. That's yeah, very interesting. I think um, I might still throw it out to questions to the, to the audience. We've covered a, a lot of topics across sort of platform innovation, marketing, rights, um, um, and distribution. Um, so maybe we'll um, see if there's any questions from the audience, please. Yes. Is there a place for cat videos in all this? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No. Do you know what I mean? Like, is there a place for that, those kind of, you know, obviously the conceived content is, is, is great and it's part of what we all do, but also there are, there are cat videos in, in life, thank God. Um, and it's that kind of UGC, that really organic moments that are captured and then go viral. How can they ho hope to kind of leverage the more traditional kind of 
you know, platforms and, and, and then obviously the financing and the, the, that kind of side that comes with that. Well, um, if I could preempt that question as well to whoever fancies it. Um, <laughs> we were talking about uh, the app talking Tom earlier. Um, I was just, I wasn't checking my, my text messages. I've got some data on here. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. God. Yeah, you're playing. Someone's, yeah, I've left He's the oven on. Fresh games. data, I'm talking Tom. <laughs> yeah. um, just so, in the text. Uh, talking Tom was downloaded 110 million times. Um, it's a mega success. And actually, it's a really great example um, of an app that is completely um, controlled by a human. The, the, it's had half a million hits for you know, a kid singing um, a Justin Bieber song for it. So, you know, there's, there's, roles, there's roles in interactive cats. Um, is, there, is there a role for a cat on Nickelodeon? <laughs> I wasn't going to answer that direct question, but I think, you know, there are, there are ways of kind of looking at how you can make, you know, things funny on your, on your channel and on your sites, for example. You know, we've just done a really big kind of campaign for Peppa Pig with her oinkestra stunt, and we actually got parents to send in videos of their kids oinking. And, you know, it's not exactly a cat <laughs> video, but who doesn't want to see a little three-year-old oink? <laughs> we loved it we had millions in our gallery so might we have on uh, uh, BTTV so uh, um, a, uh, a cat channel curated by cats for cats if I could get that past the CEO <laughs> of BT then uh, yes there is, there is a dog channel there's there dog, dog TV, dog yeah. TV. Yeah. Yeah. I've watched some of that <laughs> okay That's any other questions please <laughs> yes Hi, just following up from, um, I think, something that Sarah said around YouTube um, and I guess the, the, the juxtapose between YouTube being a very open environment where kids can explore and kind of get lost in, you know, kind of clicking on, clicking on, clicking on, clicking on um, versus the more walled guard environment that, um, that a lot of you guys offer. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just wondering how you feel... Um, uh, you know, and, and Sarah, you said that you find that people would come to your channel more than they would to YouTube if it was a, you know, uh, if it was presented in a, in a more seamless way. Just wanted to kind of follow up on that question and just ask if you think that a walled environment for children would be as appealing, if not more, than the more wild west and open and free environment of YouTube. I think, it, from my perspective, um, I'm quite ridiculously passionate about BT kids being uh, U-rated, so suitable for all. And that is the one thing that YouTube does not offer in any way, shape or form. Your child can sit there and can be watching fluffy cats hitting walls and chasing flies and falling in fish tanks. And the next thing they're watching some kind of very dubious uh, lady doing various dubious things. And that can happen through a click. Um, yep. Within a ward environment, you're creating a trust. You're creating um, a place where parents will let their kids. So I think with a ward environment, I think that is the, the greatest opportunity and it's the respons responsibility of the likes of myself and anyone else within a similar industry to, to ensure that, that for one is a safe environment and that content is what the kids want that to watch. Be that fluffy cats falling in fish tanks or be that, um, you know, the, the, the next Peppa Pig. And I think kids have, um, I mean, I've said this a bunch of times already, kids have, have, have different needs and different motivations at different times. And I don't think that what we would describe as a walled environment necessarily needs to be experienced by kids as a penitentiary. Right. It can be experienced as a club that is that they're a member of that provides stuff that's exclusively and quite, you know, 
enthusiastically for them. I mean, Nickelodeon, that's how Nickelodeon succeeded at the very beginning, by really clearly presenting itself to kids as being the channel for kids. Mm -hmm. And even though there was kids' content in lots of other places, kids went to Nickelodeon. So I, I think there's room for, for all of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, probably time for one last question. Hi, sorry, um, I produced a session, so I'm just a full disclosure. <laughs> but I was just wanted, we were talking earlier a little bit, um, and, and one of the things that I think is very interesting that um, I was sort of talking a little bit with uh, Julie about is the advice she gives to kind of new kind of talent that she, she's managing. So, you know, they're, they're desperate to get a, make a name, to make money for themselves, to be honest with you as well. Um, and they're sort of faced with a challenging environment, particularly if they're not getting onto the kind of linear broadcasters mm -hmm. that Disney's and they can only into this world. Um, and they kind of, they've got the options to go say Netflix or equivalent sort of services. Um, what's your advice and what are the challenges that you sort of tend to see when they, when they, when, when, when they kind of approach these services and you sort of represent them? Well, the, the problem with the digital services now that actually pay for content, and I'm going to have to do that in the infamous air quotes, <laughs> is that they pay so little because they're not making any money either. Right. So, um, you know, Awesomeness TV and Smosh um, Television, uh, which, you know, is an older demographic but sort of the same idea, will pay very, very little for the content that's created. And they basically take the full bundle of rights with a small participation to the creator. So, you know, I mean, some people need that two or $3,000 because it's going to, you know, pay their rent and buy them food while they're sitting at their computer and animating for a month, and they'll take it, even though it is not a good deal. Um, because, A, it's better than doing it on their own time while they're working a day job, and, B, it does, it is going to have a marketing heft behind it. You know, DreamWorks is pushing the entire channel. They're marketing it. They're promoting it. And, you know, the client's calculus is it's better to be on awesomeness and give up more rights because somebody may find it than to sit, you know, drinking beers and pizza with my friends on the weekend and owning 100% and maybe having no one find it. It's a very difficult balance. Um, and, you know, different clients make different choices. But that is kind of the choice that's out there. Otherwise, you know, if you can get a linear deal, you're probably going to give it all away on the first one and hopefully be able to renegotiate data in hand, providing there's data to be had when it does become successful or you, know, you, you have the leverage on the next deal, not the first deal. So you know, it's, it's great. I mean, look, no one had the, creators have never had the freedom they have now to get their, their stories out there. It's just a matter of how does that sustain you as an artist and how do you make a living at it? Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll wrap up there by, um, uh, thanking Susie, Russell, Sarah and Julie. Thank you very much to our producer, James. Um, there's lots to think about. Clearly, if you've got the next big thing, you need to talk to Julie immediately. Um, and then I'll go <laughs> talk to Russell. You need to talk to Russell and then you need to talk to Susie and Sarah. We'll do the deal right here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. What are we doing here? Thank you. Thank you, audience. <laughs> Thank you, audience.